Hey everyone! Welcome to the RUF at TC podcast. RUF is a community on campus learning about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. For more information about and ways you can support RUF at TCU, please visit ruf.org slash TCU. Well, in the past five years or so, um, you know, I've, you might have seen on social media or something of the like that uh, this, this phenomenon that's going around, it's like a, a, a professional athlete, as it were, uh, sort of goes undercover and enters back into the sport, uh, the sport world that they're a professional in is like an amateur. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? So, uh, you know, maybe the most famous of these is like the Uncle Drew. Uh, y'all know, please shake your heads like, you know what I'm talking about? Okay, thank goodness. Okay, okay. Sorry for the ball sports illustrations. I know some of y'all will, will, get, that, will get that joke. Um, since they don't want to blow their cover too soon, they underplay to their level of performance, giving the impression that this is just an average joke. And the gig really needs that if it's going to work. You see, without the player's skills being masked, there won't be any payoff later on when their identity is revealed. I know this may be anathema to some around here, but a few weeks ago, I saw one where the L.A. Rams quarterback... Jared Goff, if you don't know him, in two weeks, his name will be all over television when he plays in the Super Bowl. He took on the persona of a quarterback at Ventura College in Ventura, California. Now, he tried, was trying to earn his spot as a walk-on quarterback uh, for this team. And he starts out by throwing a lot of like blown passes and you know, he's sort of making a fool of himself. But then he starts to absolutely crush it. He is lighting up receivers left and right. It is amazing to sort of watch it happen. And the starting quarterbacks begin to watch this and they're getting afraid. They're scared because they're about to lose their job to some walk-on Joe with like a neck tattoo. And it's crazy, okay? Now the coach, though, reveals the identity of the athlete. And then something amazing happens. Everyone lets out this collective sigh of relief that they weren't actually being schooled by an amateur, okay? But the thing is, and this is huge, the audience is always in on it. Like, we always know that it's a a ruse, okay? We know that there's a huge reveal that is on its way that's going to change the way that people perceive the events of the last few moments or hours. You see, when the true identity of the athlete is known, It changes the way those pranked view their circumstances, even when that athlete was in those circumstances with them. So the dunk from Kyrie Irving, Uncle Drew, doesn't seem so bad anymore. The home runs launched by Chris Bryant of the Cubs make a little more sense. And when Jared Goff isn't really Dre Fogue, (laughs) you know your spot is secure again. What they couldn't see and didn't know, they now do. And calm and peace reign once again. But I would like to suggest to you two other things happen. There's always two things. There's always awe. Because they know they're standing in the presence of greatness. A master at the trade. A master at the sport. An NFL quarterback. Right? A professional baseball player. They're in awe, just like we would be. And there's always, there's never a frown on her face. There's always joy. There's always joy. It's like they love to be surprised. You see what I'm getting at? 
What if the tables were changed in such a way for just a moment where you were about to be let in on a big secret yourself? You see, the tables are returned. Well, guess what? That's what's happening in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 to 20. You're being let in on something. You see, here we see John giving us a view of something that is meant to change for the way better our present circumstances. Something that will meet us in our fears and something that will make sense of the story of our lives and the story of the world. It's so huge, some commentators have called it cosmic. And you know what? They would be right. And if you read it rightly, do you know what can be yours? Awe and joy. Awe and joy. If you read it rightly, you see tonight the real identity of Jesus as He currently is, is going to be put on display for us. I mentioned last week that the book of Revelation is not meant to conceal and hide things. Instead, it's meant to pull the cover back on things that they actually are in this world that we might see them rightly. And tonight, John gives us the first of a series of visions. And it's one of the exalted Christ. And the point tonight is to show you why that matters for our lives in the now, in the present here on a Tuesday night in Fort Worth, Texas. And why is this so critical for those who follow Jesus as their Lord? Well, listen, y'all. There is nothing that we need more than a fresh vision of who Jesus presently is for us. Let me say that again. There is nothing more that Christians need today, and even non-Christians if you're willing, than a fresh vision of who Jesus Christ is right now. Seeing Him as He is changes the way that we see our fears and the difficult circumstances in our lives. Seeing Jesus as He is is what we need more than anything else. And so John is going to show us that tonight. I'm going to try to put this underneath three headings tonight. First of all, the recipients of the vision. Secondly, I want you to take a notice at the person of the vision. And then thirdly, at the hope of the vision. And here's my hope tonight, that by seeing a sort of wig come off, the makeup come off, that you would see that greatness is in your midst and it might give you joy. And it might bring you into awe. Because that's the thing that John wants to wake us up to see. Let's take a look at it. Firstly, the recipients of the vision. The recipients of the vision. I'm looking at verses 9 through 11 or that first paragraph where John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Now, let me sort of just put it this way. In order to make sense of the letter, we have to continue to do some introductory work. And one of the things that we see in these three verses is to whom the letter is written. That's what I mean by the recipients of the letter. And there are two primary audiences that it's written to with a very important third one that we'll touch on in the end. So first, the first thing I want you to see is that the author identifies to whom this vision was given. It was himself, and it's John. Did you catch it right there? I, John, your brother and the partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. John was older at this point. John was... Uh, it, this is the writer of the Gospel of John. So if you've got the, your, your New Testament, that fourth book, the Gospel of John, it's the same John. And John was also in that inner circle with Peter and James with Jesus. So he was a dear and close friend of Jesus. That's the thing you have to remember. These are real people. John really knew his friend. 
Like you know your friend's face. This is how John knew Jesus. But the text tells us too that he was also banished or put away on the island of Patmos. The island of Patmos was a little bit off of where modern day Turkey is. At the time it was called Asia Minor. And he was put there as a punishment from the Roman state for perpetuating and teaching the teachings of Christ. You see, John was an enemy of the state, as it were, because he was telling people about Jesus. You see it there in the text, don't you? It says this, I was on Patmos on account of or because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So there it is. He was, it tells us that, that John was there. Now what you need to see too in verse 10 is it says that he was in the spirit. Now that does not mean that his arms flailed up like this, his eyeballs rolled back in his head and he was in a massive trance. Okay, That's how we often think about what, you know, in the spirit means. But for John, it just meant that he was under the influence of the spirit. He was in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that spirit allowed him to see things. It was like the veil got torn and pulled back that he was able to see. And it's, and it's this vision that we catch a glimpse of that he means when he's in the spirit. Well, it means that he, was, he saw something, that, he, that he, he got to see something that we're going to look at in just a minute. Secondly, so we have John. The second audience primarily are these seven churches that you caught there in verse 11. You see, John hears a voice that comes like a trumpet and it says, write what you have seen in a book and send it to these seven churches. These seven churches were real churches. They were on the, again, on that, on that mainland that he had been exiled from. That's where they, these were seven towns, seven churches there in, uh, in Asia Minor. And it's important for us to understand that these were real churches, that John was a pastor. And so he's writing to the congregations that he knew and loved. And so that meant that each of these towns, Ephesus or Laodicea, were wrestling with real pastoral issues, just like your church does. These were real human beings, friends. And if you go on and read chapters 2 and 3, like I mentioned a moment ago, you'll get a picture of some of the things they struggled with. Some of them had lost their love for the Lord. Some of them were in taking on false teaching. Some of them were trusting in their riches. These were all things that were very common to them, but I'd like to just suggest to you under two major headings that this letter is addressed. One, it is addressed to those who are being persecuted. Those who are being threatened bodily for their faith in Jesus. If you look back up in the first verse, chapter 9, and it says that I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, that is in these persecution, in the affliction, and in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. He's saying, I am with you in this. I know what it is like. It is for those of us who know what it is like to bear reproach For taking the name of Christ. That is the first group that John is talking about all throughout the letter. And the second group, and maybe more important and pertinent for our day and age, it's the group that are the complacent. They are the people that, for whom Christianity has just sort of become ho-hum. Who cares? They weren't non-Christians. But they were indifferent. Does that sound familiar? Does it resonate at all with you and your story through the years? That this letter might have some sort of relevance for us today. 
And it's these things that I want you to see. That these, these are the main reasons that John is writing his letter. They were being threatened with persecution. They were complacent and they were compromising. They had lost their love for Jesus. And they had a Jesus plus attitude. A Jesus plus ease. Jesus plus status. Jesus plus other religions. In short, these seven churches had lost their supreme love for Christ. And for those whom it remained, it had grown lackluster at best. This is the pastoral situation that is being addressed. Now, you caught something in there when you caught likely, when you see this language of, uh, of numbers appearing all throughout the text. Lots of sevens in there. And I think this is important for just a moment to spend a little bit of time talking to you about the presence of numbers in the book of Revelation. Things like a thousand or 144,000. Or you'll see the number seven showing up everywhere. And here's the way that numbers functioned in John's writing, this apocalyptic writing. They were symbolic. They were symbolic of, great, of, of other realities. So, for example, when you see the number two, that was the number of witness. That just meant like in a court of law, you needed two witnesses. So the idea of two would have been two witnesses. The number three symbolizes completeness. And that number, that, that, that theme shows up a ton in, in, in the numbers. So, for example, four symbolized natural completeness, like the four corners of the earth. You catch that? Uh, the number six was a number of incompleteness, because we'll see in just a moment, uh, seven. So, for example, if you've read the book of Revelation, you're familiar with the number what? Six, six, six. Now, that's a three of sixes. That's a number of complete incompleteness. John wants to get that into your mind. That's what's going on there. It's not some scary number that you have to be afraid of. It's the number of incompleteness. That's what's going on there because the number seven is one of completeness, of fullness, as it were. And this is just a small sampling. I can tell you more about them as we unroll in the, in the, uh, in the series. But for now, I just want you to see that there are seven churches, and that's not by accident. That's not by accident because instead it represents a completeness. And so here's why it's important. Because John is not just writing to those seven churches. He is writing to every believer that exists beyond those churches because that number is symbolic for the fullness of believers. The fullness of Christians. Does that make sense? So I hope you're seeing this. The point I'm trying to show you is the book of Revelation is very pertinent and relevant to our day and age. The last thing I'll say about numbers is just this. We get this. We get this. How many is a gajillion? Doesn't matter, does it? The point is, is you know, it's a very, very high number. That's the symbolic nature of numbers. Okay. And it shows up throughout the book. Well, I could go on about this. I need to keep moving. I want you to see, though, what John wants us to see. And that is, secondly, no longer looking at the recipients of the vision, but secondly, looking at the person of the vision. And here is the point. That the curtain is being pulled back in these verses 12 through 16 to show us the picture of Jesus as He presently is. Take a look with me here. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. 
clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest and so on. Now, we said last week that this is not John just trying to create something out of thin air, but rather he is pulling imagery straight from the Old Testament to tell us about who Jesus is. So I said last week, you're going to need to know your Old Testament if you want to understand what John is talking about. So two texts of importance for you would be Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 10. But this imagery is right from there. Now I'm going to explain it, and then I'm going to tell you why it matters. Okay, so let's take a look at this. Now you'll just notice the things that are mentioned here. Hair of white that represents wisdom and age and purity. This is who Jesus is. Did you catch even before that? A priestly robe. This white robe that mentions, that, that displays his priestly function. And others have commented as a robe fit for kings. And so it's royal. And so Jesus is our priestly king who is wise from his hair. The eyes of fire, right? They purify. They're eyes that see correctly and therefore judge correctly. The bronze feet. Again, that's imagery from Daniel chapter 10. Moral purity is what it stands for. And that his kingdom like bronze will never totter, but will stand forever. The voice in Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 24, we're told, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, that this is how Jesus' voice sounds. It's not like he opens his mouth and water comes out. Okay, this is imagistic language. Look at the text. Literally turn your eyes to the text. I want to show you something. Look with me in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And here we go. And in the midst of the lampstands, listen, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe. Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool. And again, over and over again, like a flame of fire. It's, these are the images that he can use to convey what he sees. That's what I hope you'll see. Keeping on going, the hand. The seven stars representing the seven angels, as we'll see in a moment. But he holds this there. This is also a counter image. In the early um, Greek world, there was a goddess named Hecate. And she was seen as the one who held the heavens. And she actually went by the name, the beginning and the end. And so John presents a counter image to what was known in that world. The mouth speaks true words like that of a judge rightly dividing, and then lastly, the face like a sun, beaming. All throughout the Old Testament, the face was God's presence, His blessing. That's why we often hear in the ironic blessing, may the, God, may the God's countenance be upon you. May His face be upon you. Because it's His face that we need. It's His presence that we so desperately need. Now, I just rolled off. Do you want to take a guess how many features of His person were just put on display there? Seven of them. And in fact, in this text, there's three sevens. There's three stars. There's three lampstands. And there's the descriptions of Jesus, which is giving us a pretty complete picture. What's the significance of this? Here's what I want you to see. That these images are always given to us to help us see differently. Listen to what one writer writes. Puts it this way. Revelation seeks to see the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the future. So in the future, to see things now. But more importantly, it seeks to set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the present. 
In other words, what that means is, is this Jesus that's on display here, one who is utterly pure, utterly holy, utterly cosmic, utterly wonderful and beautiful, and if you saw it, it would be like seeing 10,000 Jared Goffs at once. You would be caught up in literal awe and wonder and joy. That's what John wants you to see. How do we know? We'll see it in just a minute. But listen to what another author puts. Revelation wants to take its world to be even more real than the one we're commonly referred to as the real world. In fact, Revelation is out to undermine our confidence in the evidence of our eyes and ears. In other words, what you're seeing here is the real world, friends. This is how things are. This is the true nature of things. This is more real than you and your bottom and your seat. This is most real. This is what John wants you to see. Because we so desperately need it for those who are complacent and for those who are scared and being persecuted. I think this sobers us. Why? Because it actually forces us to consider the one in whom we say we believe. Many of you might know the writer, author, Annie Dillard. She has this magnificent quote. She has this magnificent quote that gets at the sort of like, are we crazy? If we really knew who, whose presence we were in right now, would we understand things a little bit differently? She writes this, referring to worship. This is a longer quote, but I want you to listen. It's wonderful. She says, why do people in church seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? I mean, does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life, life preserves and signal flares. They should lash us into our pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. John is sobering us back to what is real. To what ought to sit in your gut. To get at you. Because this is the risen Christ. Do you sense it yet? Has the image Woke something in you? I hope you're beginning to see something. This book, Right Out of the Gates, is not about us. It's not about us. It is about God. It is not about me. And I love this because one of the hardest lessons that we need to learn, and that we have a hard time learning, is that the Bible is not primarily about me. It is about the risen Christ, first and foremost. And that is what John is trying to pound it into our head. And isn't it interesting that to meet our problems and our suffering, John doesn't talk about saying, pray for different circumstances. Let me give you 10 strategies to give you a better life. 
Are you having trouble finding a boyfriend? Let me give you 12 strategies to make that happen. John says this, a man with white hair, whose tongue is like a sword that will rightly divide your soul in half. That his face shines like the bright sun because that's his countenance upon you. Because he delights in you. That's what you need to see. And what happens when we see it? That's where we turn lastly. That's where we turn lastly. Listen to what Barbara Dawn writes. She writes this. The majesty of God turns us upside down. And we fall on our face in unworthiness. It throws us to our knees in adoration and utmost humility. And that, dear friends, is what I'm talking about in this third point. The hope of the vision. Did you catch how John responds in verse 17? He falls flat on his face as though dead. This happens throughout the Bible. Job, when he's confronted with God in Job chapter 42, God speaks to him and he says, Woe is me. I am undone and I repent in dust and ashes. When Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah catches a glimpse of God, he falls down as dead. And here John is doing the same thing. And at least this is telling us this, that once you rightly see Jesus for who He is, there, there is something in you that will fall on your face in adoration and wonder. You will be put to the dust because of how wonderful and beautiful He is. Has that happened in your life? Has it Maybe you need to see what John is showing us. Because it's meant to put us in awe. That's the first response that we see here. But I want to show you secondly, and we're going to talk about this hope. I want you to see there's not only a response from John. Did you catch it? Look at it. But he laid his right hand on me. And he said this, fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And when you begin to see Jesus saying that to you, you begin to understand what this message is all about. Friends, this is about the risen cosmic Christ coming to you, laying His hand on you, and being intimate and near and dear. And when you have this transcendent God that we saw in verses 7 through 12, I mean, 12 through 16. And that when you have this intimate God in verse 16 and 17, when you begin to get a sense of both of those at the same moment, you're now beginning to deal with Jesus. Because He is both. And here's the thing I would like to say to you. That Jesus looks at you and He says, I want you to know something. All of the struggles in your life, I don't want you to be afraid. I don't want you to be scared. Listen to what he says. He says, I'm the living one. I died. I died. And I rose again. And now I have, I don't have in my pocket, but I've got the keys to death in the Hades itself. Now, if I gave you the keys to my car, what would that give you? Complete and total access. You would be in control of my car. And what Jesus is saying here, is that I've got death. I own it. I am over it. And therefore, you do not have to worry about it. And when you see that, 
I want you to see that the boyfriend problems, the job problems, the problems about not knowing your future begin to be seen in a different light. That they're not everything. It's Jesus literally saying to you, I've got this. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Marilyn Robinson once put it this way, that fear is not a Christian habit of mind. And I want to urge you to believe that tonight. Because Jesus has said to you, do not be afraid. In the fourth of the Chronicles of Narnia tales, Prince Caspian, I think it's the fourth, it might be the fifth. There's a moment where the child, Lucy, comes face to face after a long gap in time with the lion figure named Aslan. And as she sees him, she begins to wonder and to bring out an awe. And listen to what Lewis writes. But for the moment, but for the movement of his tail, he might have been a stone lion, but Lucy never thought of that. She never stopped to think whether he was a friendly lion or not. She just rushed to him. She felt her heart would burst if she lost a moment. And the next thing she knew was that she was kissing him and putting her arms as far around his neck as she could and burying her face in the beautiful, rich silkiness of his mane. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy at last. And the great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her. She gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you are bigger. That is because you are older, little one, he answered. Not because you are, said Lucy. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. I close there with wanting you to see something. This is the invitation that John is inviting us to see. Jesus has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in this vision, John is inviting us to grow up. And to see and to mature as Lucy has seen and matured. That she might see Christ rightly. And I want to say, how do we see that? How can we come to that? How can we be in awe and wonder and joy at the same time? How is it? It's because here in the text we are told that Jesus has crushed the powers of death for you and for me. And if you are in Him, as John Dennis said, death is but one short sleep past, and you wake eternally with Him. And you might think, that sounds so esoteric, Ryan. What bearing does that have on my life? Well, you tell me. You're going to die. You know that? You're going to die. Then what? Then you'll see what John saw. The white-haired ancient of days, whose eyes are like fire. And you'll see him face to face. And at long last, he will look at you 
And he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Is that your hope? Is that the controlling vision of your life? It's an invitation. Won't you take it? Won't you believe it? Won't you see Christ doing this for you? Let's pray.